Hi, this is Doug Kay, the co-host of All About the Gear, and you're listening to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for This Week in Photo is provided by the CashFly Content Delivery Network. Send your web content blazingly fast with CashFly. And now, pay as you go. Start with two terabytes free by going to C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com and use the promo code TWIP. And by Panasonic Lumix Cameras, changing photography for the next generation. TWIP is also brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code TWIP at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. To try FreshBooks for free, just go to freshbooks.com TWIP, and when you sign up, enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Before we dive into this week's show, here's a quick look at what's happening on the TWIP network. First up, on the candid frame, a Barry Next takes a verbal trip to the Mississippi Delta with Magdalena Soleil. And over on TWIP Family, Jenny sits down with husband and wife photography team, Jenny and Josh Solar. And on The Fix, it's all about black and white photos in Lightroom with John G. Moore. And on TWIP Weddings, it's a deep dive into backup and archiving with industry legend, Gary Fong. All that and more is happening this week on the TWIP Network. You can subscribe for free to any or all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com slash subscribe. Welcome to TWIP episode 425. I'm your host, Joseph Lanashki. Joining me this week to discuss Flickr, DJI, and focus stacking are Don Kamarechka and Valerie Jardin. It is Monday, August 10th, 2015, and this is TWIP. So we're going to jump right into the stories here. Hello, folks. Hello, Don. Hello, Valerie. Hey. Hello, Joseph. Hello. It's apparently we were on the show together uh, something like 18 years ago, all three of us. <laughs> and I'm excited oh. after hearing you um, tell the topics of the week. <laughs> it's right down my alley. Right down your alley. Well, <laughs> so we're going to say. Yeah, I can't wait to find out how focus stacking plays into uh, your street photography. But we are going to start with a story about Flickr bringing back Flickr Pro. So as uh, many of you know, at some point in around 2013, Flickr dropped the Pro badge, dropped the um, the, the paid Pro, and gave everybody basically a terabyte of storage for free, which frankly was awfully generous of them. Uh, I'm sure this has cost them a lot of money over the years, and they're now probably trying to make some of that money back. And they have now brought in a Pro version, a Pro feature. You can pay monthly for $5.99 a month, or pay annually for $49.99, which will save you almost 22 bucks over the course of the year. There's not a whole lot of features that they're adding for that, but those do seem to be pretty beneficial, uh, the ones that are there. So, Don, you mentioned that you were a pro user. You've used this in the past, and I imagine it means you're going to be using it in the future. What about the pro account is interesting to you? Well, one of the biggest features that uh, that enticed me originally to become a pro uh, subscriber, I guess, was the uh, the use of statistics to really dig in and see where people were coming in from to view your photographs, and if you had a spike of traffic on your images, uh, to kind of distill it down and figure out, okay, you know, th this is what is meaningful for me uh, to you know post more of this stuff or to see who linked back and try to find a website that is now you know showcasing my work for for whatever reason. Um, so those statistics. I found really valuable and um, with Flickr they did not uh they, they did not stop you from continuing on with a pro, uh, pro account. I've always had it. Um, you were grandfathered in and you could continue to pay monthly. Uh, so it's a feature that I, I was never without. So Although, you can pay for it 
once they gave you the free terabyte, you could still pay for the pro feature? Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know if I had the free terabyte. It was never something useful for me. I didn't actually look into that. But uh, I did just keep on trucking with my uh, with my regular old pro account. And I think a question on a, a couple of twips ago when I was on, somebody had asked, you know, how they could take a look at their um, uh, you know their, their Flickr statistics. And I mentioned, well, I can see them, uh, but it was because I was still a pro user, and mm. anybody that was not a pro user, I guess, did not have access to that feature. And so now it's. Uh, it's there again for everybody and okay. I'm sure there's tons of other little bits and pieces like I remember there was a limitation on the number of um, of groups that you could submit a photo to and if I wanted to submit a photo to say 50 separate groups well then I could not do that without a paid account uh, so these limitations may have been lifted at some point in the past but now if you're a pro uh, you've got pretty much every bell and whistle that Flickr has to offer okay got it uh, Val I will throw this over to you in a second but Don since you're your understanding of these uh, statistics are, are quite high. What, obviously, you get stats on if people visit your photos or look at your photos on Flickr. But if you you can embed your photos from Flickr elsewhere, right? So if let's say I just embed a Flickr photo on my own web page and people view it on my web page but never actually click through to Flickr, will that show up as a as a read on the Flickr stats? It, yeah, well, okay, so it's not going to show up as an exclusive read. It's not going to be segregated to say that, yes, this is from an embedded view versus a click. Um, and I don't know if I've ever been able to tell the difference between them. But I do know that I get uh, uh, statistics showing up from, you know, Flickr widgets where people might uh, have a, a website that has a stream of images from a Flickr group. And mm. those will sometimes appear within my statistics. So, yes, but I don't know if it's quite as granular as I'd like. Fair enough. Okay. All right, cool. Valerie, are you using Flickr? No, and I never have. Uh, it seems like everybody else is on it. Um, well, it seems like a few years ago when I started social media, and I kind of started social media much later than most people, um, I looked at Flickr, and to me, as a photographer, it seems like people were not very discerning, kind of throwing everything in there. Mm -hmm. And um, and it seems like it has changed. And I, I'm always referred to Flickr accounts, you know, to check out people's work. And uh, there is a lot of good stuff in there, and I think you can be part of groups. And so I, I think I should have probably looked into it a little bit further. I think it's a bit late in the game for me now because I really don't have the time. And and I feel that if you do this kind of thing, you it's better to do less but better than spread out too much. Sure. Uh, but as far as the rate, I mean, I'm I would much prefer to pay a little bit and be able to complain if something is not up to par. I mean, like everybody complains about Facebook, but it's free. I mean, who are we to complain? Right, We're using right. it for free. Uh, but then on the other hand, like I have a page on Facebook and n not even 5% of my followers actually see my pictures. Uh, and you can see now it tells you this was seen by 350 people out of 10,000 you know, mm -hmm, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's 3,000 3, out of 10,000, but very rarely. So the, the numbers are pretty low. So uh, they're trying to get you to to promote your post. So right. so you if you want visibility, you have to pay on, on Facebook, which I don't do unless I'm, you know, there is a, I'm promoting something special like a new workshop and I want everybody to see it. But I kind of feel cheated that those 10,000 people can't see what I'm posting. Whereas if you're on Flickr and you post pictures, I think everybody has access to them, right? They, they don't limit the number of views, do they? I don't think they, they limit anything on Flickr. Uh, the, the issue, though, that I find now 
is, uh, like you had mentioned, Valerie, is when you have people that have like 20,000 pictures on, on Flickr because they've just been uploading every single photograph yeah. that was taken from their cell phone since they got their phone in 2005. And it's just, it's a dumping ground. And yeah. I, I find that it has evolved somewhat from that. But uh, a lot of the groups, um, they have like a community component where you could have like a, a conversation. I'm not even sure if that's still around. Most of the groups just end up being a dumping ground for photos. And you'll have, you know, 10 different groups that have almost exactly the same title. And they'll all end up with exactly the same kind of images in it. Um, and so there's some fundamental problems, I think, with Flickr that were never addressed and never fixed. Um, although I think that the service has, by and large, improved quite a bit. One of the biggest value points I found in, in Flickr and other services like 500px is that uh, I'll post, if I'm doing a series of images, I'll post them to like six different uh, you know, social networks. And if one of them gets picked up on, say, Flickr has their Explorer service, then it might get seen by you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people mm -hmm. because it's been featured on a curated list. And I'm not sure exactly how it ends up on a curated list, but there is that as a component of Flickr. And if your image ends up there, then it can be a huge boost for you uh, and get at least some level of notoriety for your work. But can't the same be said for the other? Yeah, for 500px, they have the same. Yeah. I was about to say, yeah, at 500px is uh, is going to be sort of a, a arbitrated based on uh, upvotes. Uh, I think right. they they might call them faves or, or likes or something similar to that. Well, and I know they do have curated lists as well because a friend of mine, a photographer friend of mine, was asked to curate for a 500px group or they have their editor's or choice or, or yeah, uh, that was it. Editor's similar choice. stuff, yeah. And, uh, and so those are great lists to be a part of. Uh, I think that if you're not on that list in Flickr, uh, which is a curated list, then I don't know how valuable it's going to be for you. 500px at least has the benefit of having sort of a, um, a court of public opinion where everybody can create a popular list by upvoting their, uh, their favorite images. And yeah, on the front page, you'll get a lot of scantily clad women as you would on the internet uh, as people upvote those images. But there's a lot of really good photographs that uh, that rise to the top and get the exposure that they so too deserve. Um, now, one thing that always bothered me though about 500px, and now I see it in Flickr, <laughs> is when you had a paid account on 500px, uh, you would have like a little plus uh, moniker after your name or whatever package you happen to uh, mm -hmm. have, have bought into. And so people know that you are a paying customer versus just a regular schmo. Uh, and I don't think that needs to be advertised. There's no way to turn it off. And now with Flickr, if you are a pro subscriber, the word pro appears next to your name. I don't like that. I wish it was gone. Well, mm -hmm. that's interesting because I think uh, some people see that as a benefit to kind of prove you're, you're active. You are your paid subscriber. You've got some skin in the game here. You're not just some spammer who just created an account and went around telling people their, you know, their photography's crap. This is a... Uh, you, like I said, you got skin in the game. You're, you're a little bit more invested than your average user. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that your work is any good. Well, no, certainly not. <laughs> so it, it kind of it, maybe It's only saying paying. that you're paying. Yeah. yeah. No, fair yeah. enough. You know, Valerie, you said something I wanted to jump back to, and it's not particularly about Flickr, but you said you're talking about Facebook and how, um, you know, it's free, obviously, so we have nothing to complain about. But then on your page, you aren't getting a whole lot of views out of your 10,000 fans. Maybe, you know, 300 of them are, are seeing your things. Um, unless you pay. Now, I, I've never even really considered it this way, but what if we just treated Facebook like a paid account, you budget whatever, yeah. 100 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or whatever you know you can afford and make sense for your business to do promoted content and promote essentially every post that you put on your page, at least every post that you want people to see. Yeah. Could that be and, worth it? 
Uh, yeah, and I've done that, and it it's actually a cheap cheap way to advertise because you can choose your demographics, you can choose your um, geographic sure. uh, location where you want more people to see your post. You can you can post um, to all your fans plus their friends. So there are different. You, you can have a, a, a budget of fifty dollars or thousand dollars. I mean, it's and the more you pay, of course, the more visibility you you will have. I. And I, I've noticed too, if you start using um, the that that feature occasionally on Facebook, then they limit even more your visibility on your regular post to kind of push you to promote them. Really? So well, if they, you're, they well, are a business. Very obvious, yeah. So wait, so if you pay for some, then as soon as you start it, paying for some, the ones you don't pay for get even less visibility? Yes, because the only time mm. I've used it is when I publish, uh, when I launch a new workshop so mm -hmm. that, I mean, I, I do I do send a newsletter out, but of course, I don't have yet 10,000 people on my mailing list. So, but I have 10,000 people who on Facebook who are potentially looking at my work. And chose to be there, so I just um, if I want to put like uh, I, the new Paris workshop for two thousand uh, for next May is uh, registration is open, then I'll put fifty dollars, and and uh, usually I get two registrations right away, so it's well worth it sure. because it's only fifty bucks and it gives me more, more visibility. People who may not see my post on their stream because they don't comment, and after a while they disappear, mm -hmm. although they still fall. You know, technically follow me, but after a while, they just they don't see the post. So then they appear. I say, "Oh, that's right. That that's something I had in mind. I wanted to, you know, go on a Paris workshop or whatever." And that some that puts it back on their stream again. Right. So that is well worth it. So yeah, if you if you use it, I would never use that that to for to post a picture or anything. I mean, it would have to be for really the business aspect, not posting uh, images every day. But um, it, it is worth it. But I also noticed that the rates have gone up. Like it used to be you you could spend $10 and all your fans would see your post for 24 hours, for example. Mm -hmm. And now that has jumped to 50. Oh, wow. Okay. So... Yeah, I was gonna. I was wondering if you could do something like budget a dollar per post just to have it really quite well, inexpensive. Then they have the advertising part, which I haven't used yet. So they have that's another option. I've never looked into that, and I think that's you pay per click. So that's kind of you know, I don't know about that. But um, and I don't need. I, I don't care if other people see the post. I would like at least the people who chose to follow my page to be able to see that specific post. So. Uh, and that you know, I as I said, Facebook's free, so that's kind of a, a membership thing. Uh, and for me, I only use Facebook uh, for my photography page. I don't use it for my. I don't use my personal wall. So it's a, it's a great tool. It's a great marketing tool if you use it right. So I it, and I don't want to compare Facebook to Flickr. I mean, Flickr and 500px are more um, have more in common uh, sure. than than. Facebook for sure. But um, again, you know, people complain about a service that they get for free. Well, you know, it's not much you can say about it. Don't use it if you no, complain, if you're not happy with it. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So just getting back to the topic, the Flickr Pro, so the advanced stats, you also get ad-free browsing and sharing. You save on standard shipping of Flickr Pro merchandise. I, I don't think you'd have to buy a lot of merchandise to make that worthwhile. And then if you're not a Creative Cloud user yet, you can upgrade to get uh, to a Creative Cloud and get 20% off the first year, which is, uh, which is not insignificant. So if you're going to 
upgrade to the full Creative Cloud, it's probably worth grabbing the Flickr thing just to get that discount. Uh, all right, anything else you want to, either one of you want to add to that before we move on to the next topic? I just want to say, you know, I, I don't mind spending money uh, on photographic services, you know, in a subscription-based environment here where uh, any photographer that is using uh, Adobe's latest software, they're paying monthly. Mm -hmm. um, if you're subscribing to a service like Flickr Pro, it, it's it's a nominal fee to, to give you I, I, I want to say a leg up. It gives you more opportunities, possibly to uh, to promote your work, to to have it in front of more eyeballs, and that's exactly what Valerie was saying about uh, Facebook and you know the promoted posts and what have you. Uh, I've done some series of images where uh, on Facebook I would you know I would give a dollar or two to each post when I'm posting one a day uh, for like a hundred days straight. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much that actually accrued as, as new viewership, but you're sending it not just to the people that are following your page, you can send it to the, uh, those people and their friends. And so, you know, I, I found that to be a way to slowly organically grow uh, a, a group of people. And on Flickr, when you're doing that kind of stuff, if you can send it to more groups, if you can have statistics that show exactly who's seeing your images, then that gives you another way to interact. And if you can interact and engage with more people, then that gives you a, a, a more solid following and more power to you. If that's the kind of thing that you want to do, like by all means, go for it. And uh, if you are, if you don't subscribe to uh, the Creative Cloud, uh, Joseph, I didn't know that was included in the new thing, that the discount, then that that just sweetens the deal. Yeah, and that's only if you pay for the full year. I should mention. Right. And overall, all this is so cheap because I used to run a small business before. Um, I mean, no, actually, I, we did have a website, but nobody had the internet. <laughs> we had to find somebody <laughs> in New York to design the website for us. I'm talking 20 years ago. And we had to have brochures printed. You know how much that was? It was, oh, I sure. mean, we, it, it was so expensive. And now we have all this available pretty, practically for free or for you know, pretty small fee. Mm -hmm. Well, think about and what I, you would spend on a lens, right? Or heck, you probably <laughs> spend more on a memory card than you would on a Flickr Pro account. Yeah. No, very true. So overall, true. you know, I think it's it's all good. It's well worth it if you do it right. Um, well, that's the key. If you do it right, if you use it. I mean, there's so many services that it's so easy to spend, oh, 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there, 100 bucks there. But you can do that dozens of times throughout the year. And if you're not using it, then it is just wasted money. So no matter how beneficial it seems to be, if you're not going to actually use it, then there's not much point in spending the cash. Mm -hmm. It's certainly worth, uh, worth remembering. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Panasonic Lumix cameras and the new Lumix G7 4K mirrorless interchangeable lens camera. This hybrid camera puts the power of 4K video and photography into the hands of all of us. Hybrid is when you mix stills and video, and now with the 4K photo features built into the Lumix G7, you can turn your 4K videos into high-resolution photos with just the touch of the screen. And because the camera can record 4K at up to 30 frames per second, you'll never miss a photo moment ever again. And with its groundbreaking depth from defocusing technology, you'll achieve super fast track focusing that rivals some of the best DSLRs in the world. And add to this that the camera is controllable from a smartphone app and you end up with a camera that's changing photography for all of us. Find out more about this new camera over at LumixLounge.com and follow at LumixUSA on Twitter for updates. Alrighty, well, let's move on to the next story, which is all about DJI's new Phantom 3. And we had a, a great... <laughs> We had, there's a great article on The Verge, a really nice in-depth review of that. We'll link to that in the show notes. 
but I went through it and I grabbed a few choice little tidbits out of there that I'm going to regurgitate to you all, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll hash it out and just talk about it a little bit. But one of the first things that I caught in there, which I really really appreciated. I was talking about how drones are going to be filling the skies and, you know, before you know it, they're going to be everywhere and everybody's got one and so on and so on. But the article did say everyone, and I'm quoting now, everyone from real estate and insurance agents to traffic cops and wedding photographers are applying for permission. And that applying for permission made me so happy to see because I have gotten into arguments with people about the right to fly a drone for commercial use and... Um, as I'm sure you guys are aware, it, it ain't legal if you don't have permission from the FAA to fly a drone for commercial use. And so many people just don't get that. I do a little bit of real estate photography and I had someone reach out to me with, uh, who says, oh, I got a drone. I'd love to fly for you, get some shots. And I said, well, do you have an FAA license? And they started arguing with me about how they don't need one. And I'm just going, you, but you do for commercial use. You do. I think a lot of people don't know that. So just, a, just a little shout out to the interwebs out there. If you're going to do this thing for professional work, uh, watch yourself. You really do need to get proper permission. So with that out there, that little PSA out of the way, let's just go through some of the features. So some of the cool features on here uh, uses GPS, of course, but the new one also uses the Russian GLONASS, which is the their kind of uh, alternative to GPS. So it can grab more satellites and grab them more quickly. It has this visual positioning system for flying indoors, which I think is incredibly cool. It uses a camera, a down-facing camera, looks at the floor essentially and maps out the floor so it can move around and navigate and come back to center point and so on. And it, the article says if it doesn't have a high contrast floor, if you've got like a polished white you know, uh, floor, it's not going to really work. But if you've got some good texture, good patterns in the floor, it can do that, which is pretty darn cool. The higher-end system shoots 4K video, 12-megapixel stills. You get 20 to 25 minutes worth of flight time versus 15 to 20 on the DJI Phantom 2. It has uh, it talks about the incredible image stabilization. And one of the things it points out that I, I found interesting, and I've seen this before for sure, is it's the stabilization is almost too good. It looks almost too perfect, and especially when, when moves start and end, they don't tend to ease in and out, which is one of those big things that... Uh, that photographers and cinematographers want. And so we'll see. I guess the article says that something from 3D Robotics might have easing coming in the future. So we'll see about that. And then they've got this advanced video downlink system called Lightbridge that used to be a $1,400 add-on, but is now included on the uh, middle model, middle and higher end models of the DJI Phantom 3, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's got live streaming, which it says is inconsistent, but that's a really cool possibility. It really opens things up, especially for breaking news opportunities. If you're going to, whether you're, you know, NBC, CBS type of type of news organization, or just a guy with a blog to ability, the ability to broadcast breaking news live from the sky is pretty, pretty darn cool. So prices for this thing start at $799 for the base model, $999 for the advanced, and then $1259 for the pro with 4k, which is pretty darn cool. All right, guys, enough of my monologue. Who's got one? I just want to say I'm in awe as how fast these things evolve. Yeah. I remember we were just talking about drones a couple of years ago and how they were becoming useful things. Uh, and now, I mean, the possibilities are just endless. Here I am looking at this list of, of new features, especially that live streaming. I mean, not only could people use it for breaking news, but could you imagine... Um, you know, I, it was in the news recently that uh, people flying drones near, uh, you know, uh, building fires or forest fires uh, are preventing the the actual rescuers from doing their job. But yeah, what if problem. you could fly a drone into the top 
floor of a building knowing full well that it's going to be destroyed, but then you might be able to get a little bit of recon for $1,000 uh, and maybe save a life. Uh, yeah. You know, th th there could be value in that when you've got that uh, that technology just at your fingertips. And uh, I, I, I'm in awe. I'm, I'm so excited about this stuff. But like you had mentioned, Joseph, with your PSA, um, you have to use this technology responsibly. Well, that's you exactly it. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about the, the firefighters and the rescue workers, because that was recently. That was down in L.A., major fire on the highway, and there were a bunch of drones flying around, and the, the rescue or the service helicopters couldn't get in there. And that's a real problem. I mean, real problem. And they can't – it's not like you can say, well, they'll just, they can just shoot it down or knock it out of the sky, because then that's going to potentially hurt somebody on the ground. Um, if, if one of those aircraft come in contact uh, with like an actual helicopter or plane oh, okay. of any kind, I mean, th there is – huge potential a uh, potential for loss of life i mean Absolutely. there's there's no question and uh, and then what yeah you've got you've got a murder charge on your hand really uh it, it, is it worth it is it worth disrupting lives is it worth uh, destroying your own to be flying a drone where you shouldn't and well, no it certainly isn't and that's one of the, the problems is that people people are going to be careless and the more careless people are the more likely we're going to have some pretty heavy-handed government intervention with this sort of thing and i could see the day where people keep screwing around like that and before you know it, it's required by law for every drone maker to include the ability for a law enforcement to take over the aircraft. So it can fly into an area. There's half a dozen drones that shouldn't be there. Some pilot hits a button and suddenly it takes control of all those drones. And do you really want to give someone else that capability and that power? But if we don't start behaving, that sort of thing's going to happen. I, I certainly wouldn't want that behavior to be incorporated into my car, uh, <laughs> you know. So I, I certainly wouldn't want that to, to be in anything that I would be piloting or driving. Um, but going back to the idea of of how many new possible uses this could contain, I'm thinking about Valerie here. I'm thinking, could a drone be useful in street photography? It would take all the fun out of street photography, in my opinion. <laughs> but um, but again, it's a cost-efficient way to do our job. I When I started um, my early years as a commercial photographer, I did a lot of real estate photography. Back then, you could either, you know, and people wanted aerial shots of, you know, those the multi-million dollar properties wanted aerial shots. And so you either rented a pretty big cherry picker or a pilot with a helicopter. Those were expensive ways to do your real estate photography. Now for $1,000 and a permit, you can uh, you can fly a drone and, and get the same shots. So that's pretty awesome. I yeah. would not get one. I have no <laughs> use for that anymore. I don't... I. I don't think that would be, I mean, yeah, it could be fun to get aerial shots, just like it's fun to to look at um, Google Map, um, how do you call that? The, Google Earth. Yeah, the, the shots of people in the street. You know, oh, street the, view, right. Yeah, street view. But that, that would be about it. I, I don't, you know, it would not, you have to be behind the lens to capture the moment. Sure. And uh, I don't think uh, it would be really valid street photography but could be a really fun project that said if you have uh, if you're into that kind of technology and can get one why not maybe actually i'd love to hear of a street photographer for street focus for street photographer out there i should put that uh, out on, on my show uh <laughs> is doing street photography with a drone i'd love to have him on the show and talk about it 
Cool. Very cool. You know, you mentioned the aerial photography for real estate. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a tip out there for anybody doing that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, a drone, well, needing the permit or you're doing it illegally or the expense of hiring a cherry picker, like you said, or, uh, or a helicopter. Uh, what I do is I have a 16-foot painter's pole that I mount the camera on the end of. Stick that thing up in the air, and it's not aerial, but you know what? It's high enough to get a picture of a house, and that works so well. Stick the camera way up there, remote trigger it, and, um, yeah, it's a great way to get those quote-unquote aerial shots without breaking any rules or spending a lot of money. That that's the thing, yeah. Now, is that permit that you need to get from the FAA or that license? Does that cost money as well? I'm sure it does, but it's not the kind of thing that anybody can go out and get. There's very few people right now. uh, My understanding, and I was pretty up to speed on this uh, a number of months ago, and you know things change very quickly, so some of this may have changed. But my understanding was it's a full-on FAA license that you need to get, and there were very few people in the country that were licensed for commercial use as of maybe six months ago. And a, a buddy of mine nearby here, here in Ashland, who is a, a pilot, he flies real planes and helicopters and so on, he does have a license to fly for his company. So he's got a couple of licensed pilots in his company. He's one of the only people in the area that can do that. And it's great. And I've been able to hire him for shoots where it's needed and we can be all completely above board and fully insured and everything else. And, you know, the, one of the problems is people will say, well, yeah, but what's going to happen? You know, what's the worst that can happen? Or they get done with it and nothing happened. They say, see, nothing went wrong. But it's always that what if. It's that insurance, yep. right? If you if you are doing something really simple and you crash, the, even if you do some minor damage, right? You crash the drone through the window um, and the homeowner says, you know, you got to pay for that. But then they decide, well, hold on. I'm going to actually sue you for that because, you know, you scared my cat and there's trauma. Well, there is no way you're going to win when you're doing this illegally. It may have been minor damage. It may be overblown. But if you're breaking the law, uh, which you would be, you're going to have a real problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I'll sure. say that the, uh, the there are similar rules in Canada as well, where um, you, you need to have the proper documentation, the proper licensing in order to fly a drone. And I'm so on board with that. Um, in some cases, too, I completely agree with the necessity to even f- uh, file a flight plan. Because whether or not you've got a license doesn't mean that you could just pop that drone into the air if you happen to be near an airport. Uh, because you never know where the aircraft are going to be coming and going and how high you're able to fly that thing. Especially if you're in a rural area, there might be some smaller airports around uh, that you might not even be aware that they're there. Uh, There's some companies around here that actually they do helicopter tours and they'll fly fairly low over the highway uh, uh, just uh, north of where I live. And if you if you happen to think at exactly that moment, oh, you know what, let's go and take my drone over the highway to get a great shot of the traffic going by, you might not think you're doing anything wrong. But if you didn't tell anybody that you were flying your drone there, uh, you could be in some serious trouble as well. Yeah, absolutely. True. Absolutely. All right. Any last thoughts on this before we move on to the next story? I am just um, so excited to see what's going to happen in the next five years with these things. Uh, It's not going to take long before people start putting weapons on them and then we're all doomed. (laughs) Well, that that happened. Um, So (laughs) just YouTube, Google Google that one. That happened. (laughs) Jeez. Did you have something, Valerie, you were going to say? No, actually, one of those could probably take down if it hit a small plane and the wrong part of the wing could probably take a small plane down i could take a big plane down if it flies into the engine oh that yeah true mm-hmm. but the chances of them being at that altitude yes but well, even big yeah, planes the plane is landing yeah, yeah exactly landing, yeah. landing and takeoff even big planes start at zero altitude and move yeah. their way up from there yeah so, um, my son flies and um he was out one night and they hit a how do you call that a snow goose 
It could be. Is there such a thing as a snow goose? I may be saying such something. A thing. It, yeah, it exists. Okay. And uh, it almost took the wing. It actually put, put a hole in the wing of a Cessna. And they had to do an emergency landing. Had it hit just a little bit more to the left or the right, I don't remember, it would have taken the wing. So, um, so imagine something like that. I mean, it's probably not as heavy as a big bird, but uh, it could do a lot of damage. Yeah, it's scary. Absolutely, kid. Scary stuff. Alrighty. Well, let's move on. After this break, we are going to discuss focus stacking. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to freshbooks.com twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, we use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know, as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know, all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain. And thankfully, FreshBook offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or, you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients. It's easy. You can do it in seconds and expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your on your mobile phone. You can whip up business reports. You can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up. So with a couple of clicks, you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant so that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com slash twip, enter the code this week in photo or twip in the how did you hear about us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com slash twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section. And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of this week in photo. Welcome back. So we are going to be discussing something that Valerie is so convinced she's going to find a way to integrate into street photography, and that is focus stacking. That will be the day. <laughs> so if for... I do that someday, just take the camera away. <laughs> <laughs> so just to uh, set the stage a little bit, I'm going to uh, explain what focus stacking is, and then Don is going to tell me what I said that was wrong. And, uh, and we're going to tease Valerie and find a way that she can uh, integrate this into her work. So the idea behind focus stacking is you're all, of course, familiar with macro photography, getting up real, real close to something, uh, say a little piece of jewelry or a little flower or something like that. But with macro photography, usually comes extremely shallow depth of field, which can be good, but not always. If you're showing off a product like a, an earring or a, you know, a little wedding ring type of thing, you probably want that to be fully in focus, but you still want that 
that quote unquote shallowed up the field. You want everything behind it to fall apart. So what focus stacking does is it allows you to take a series of pictures. It could be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pictures, each with a very narrow slice of the object in focus. And then in Photoshop, combine all those together to get a perfectly sharp object that still has a totally soft background. So Don, did I get that right? You got it pretty right. Uh, however, there are many limitations that say that even if you wanted to take it all in one shot and have everything in focus, you can't. You're pushing up against the limits of physics. And so now when you get into extreme macro photography, you don't have a choice in the matter. If you want to have things in focus, this is the technique that's required. So shooting at f32 or f45, if the lens does that, uh, and I'm only, what, half an inch away, it just ain't going to cut it? Well, it depends on your magnification, because uh, for every magnification factor that you have, you have to add one stop to your effective aperture. So let's say you're shooting something with a regular macro lens and you're shooting at f32. Well, your effective aperture is going to be f45. And when you get into apertures that are that small and smaller, then you encounter problems caused by diffraction, where light bending around the aperture of the lens uh, will kind of fall off course. You know, it's supposed to hit one pixel, but it's going to be rippling onto the pixels around it. And while a majority of it might hit the center where it should, um, every pixel is kind of bleeding into the pixels around it, and that causes blur. Uh, the technical term is diffraction limiting. And as camera sensors get uh, more and more advanced with more and more pixels, the pixels on the sensor are like in their physical size becoming smaller and smaller. So this diffraction limiting becomes a bigger problem. Even for landscape photographers, it's now becoming an issue on cameras like the new 5DS. So in the macro realm, when you shoot with very, very small apertures, then the, the, the physical limitations of light itself will play against you. And I'll give you an example here. Um, you know, sometimes I'm doing some pretty extreme macro work with, uh, uh, say, 12 to 1 magnification, which is about 12 times the regular uh, macro lens magnification you can get. And if I'm shooting at f2.8, if I add 12 stops to that, my effective aperture is f180. There's no way getting around diffraction at that point, but I'm also not going to get more in focus. There's no trade-off that I could get in one frame. I might have a 50th of a millimeter in focus at that magnification. Uh, and to lesser extremes, if I'm photographing a wedding ring or if I'm photographing, see, product photography is another good one, sometimes even used by uh, food photographers. Um, if you want to have more in focus, you need to take the image at multiple points. Each different point will have a different slice of the focus that you need, and you have to be cognizant, of course, that, you're, that you've got a certain overlap uh, between those different images. I always take more than I think I need. Um, I've combined, I think, as many as 70 separate images in focus stacking uh, to do some of my work with uh, extremely small snowflakes. Um, water droplets and, and those kind of images might take around a dozen to 20 separate images in order to get enough in focus in the foreground to make my image nice and crisp and sharp exactly where I want it to be, but have the background fall off beautifully into some nice smooth bokeh. Oh, fantastic. Way more information so, than I knew. So, Valerie? So, uh, but, <laughs> way oh, more ahead. information than I needed to, actually. <laughs> I, you know, I, th th that's the, the idea, but the technique is actually really easy to, uh, to do. Um, and so I actually I held a photography workshop uh, here yesterday, and one of the topics we talked about was specifically this. And uh, if you've got the images that you need to focus stack, regardless of what order they're in, um, and I even do this handheld, too. That's not, uh, that, that's not beyond approach. 
So if you take those images into Photoshop, even if they're not aligned properly, you just bring them in from Lightroom, you select them all, you choose like the edit in, and then the last option on that menu is um, open as layers in Photoshop mm -hmm. or open in Photoshop as layers. And uh, then you've got all of those in Photoshop, select all of your layers, and there's two steps. All you have to do is go in their edit menu and choose auto align layers if you think that they're out of alignment. And then when that's done, hit auto blend layers. It'll be smart enough to choose that it's a panorama and then away you go. And you can also do this through the photo merge tool as well. Panorama um, or, or you mean focus stack. It'll know yeah, that it's yeah. Uh, and so in, in, this, uh, in this setup, you're probably going to see some mistakes from the automatic process. It's never going to be perfect. Uh, I wrote a whole book on how to do it right. Uh, if anybody's curious about that, you can check out my book, Sky Crystals. But um, in, in these techniques, if you want to do, like, say, the 85% of the way there, it's just those two simple options. If you want to take it all the way there uh, to fix any imperfections, you need to create a separate stack of your original images and using layer masks, paint in the areas where Photoshop would have goofed up. And, uh, and that's where, you know, it might take me four hours to edit a photograph to make it perfect. Um, but really, you, you'll see the effect immediately once you hit a couple of buttons, and then you'll get, uh, you'll, you'll get the idea of what you're trying to create. Wow, impressive. So, okay, let me ask you, because um, I've seen two different ways of doing this. Now I'm just ex exploring my own curiosity here. I know that you can do focus stacking by leaving the camera stationary and refocusing the lens. And then you can also do it by leaving the focus stationary and physically moving the camera using a, a micrometer or micrometer, however it's meant to be pronounced, moving the camera forward or backward in very, very small increments. Are there advantages, disadvantages to either way or the other, or is one vastly superior to the other? I'd say that there's disadvantages to both. Okay. Um, I'd say if you're if you're using the focusing ring on the camera, this is a way that can be automated also with some software right, too. Right, right. Uh, and so there's an advantage to that because it might be easier. But when you're changing the focus of the lens, you're also slightly changing the focal length of the lens, right. which is also slightly changing the field of view. And when you're trying to combine images together in this manner that have a different field of view, it's going to bring in some problems. If you're, uh, you're changing the field of view if you move the camera forward or backward as well. You are, and so that's another problem. Uh, however, it, it becomes a, a lesser problem uh, than, than I think if you're just changing the focus on the camera. Um, what I do is when I'm hand-holding my, my equipment, uh, I move it forward and backward the entire thing. I'm not adjusting the focus. And uh, I will have vertical and horizontal shifts that need to be corrected, uh, but that also introduces a perspective shift that causes issues too. So there's, there's no perfect way to do it. I was actually talking to a company uh, called Giga Macro, and uh, they have an automated process for doing focus stacking. It's really quite cool where um, I, this is not something that the average photographer would buy. It's something designed for universities and, uh, and, and large libraries and archives where they will do grid panorama focus stacks. So it's an automated system to put all of that together. But they found that the light entering into the lens, if it was more straight to begin with, uh, then you would have a much easier time putting all of that stuff together. So they are incorporating within their design a telecentric lens adapter, uh, which I actually have a prototype from them sitting here, and I've been meaning to, uh, to put through its paces to see if it definitely improves the focus stacking process. So I'll report back on that when I've got a spare moment to, to see how that works. But uh, using a telecentric lens in front of your lens or a specially designed lens for that purpose would be the ideal solution. Most photographers won't be able to do that, and any other uh, thing that you attempt to do will have its own drawbacks that require some manual artistry in correcting the automatic process, and that just takes time. Wow. 
Well, that Giga Macro, uh, I just punched it in gigamacro.com, and they've got this 7.8 gigapixel image of a cicada. Uh, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. I'm scanning a around this thing right image now. image to begin with. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've done that with a, I have some very, very minor panoramas, but they're doing like immense number crunching and, and very, very precise mathematics in order to create something like that. Uh, and it's fascinating to see. It is. So cool. All right, Valerie, how are you going to use this in street photography? I don't know, but I'm dying to try it. But you know what? I can't because I don't even have Photoshop anymore. So there. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say, Valerie, you know, if you've got, say, like a nice rainy day and you've got like a uh, uh, some sort of a railing or fence line and you've got some water droplets dangling off of them, uh, then if you look through those water droplets, you can see a refracted image of the scene behind it. Uh, And and I've I've done macro photography, but and I used to have a really nice lens when I was still shooting canon i had the the 100 macro lens for it but i never did you know i did macro photography like average people do it (laughs) don't do it too like blending all those images together oh my gosh it no i couldn't i would seriously not have the patience to do that i mean when when hdr first came out and i tried it you know with photomatics and just getting three Yeah, having to get three shots just was like, why? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. So, so don't if you get it all in one shot, then there's no need to do anything else. And and I'll I'll tell any photographer that wants to experiment with focus stacking or even HDR or anything else that combines photos together, if you can get the shot in one frame, don't bother trying to do anything else. If you can create your creative vision in camera, then you've got it. Um, if there's something that's stopping you from doing that, uh, you know, in, in the case of focus stacking, it's the, you know, the physics of light, uh, then, you know, <laughs> you have no choice. Uh, but if you can get it in one shot, then don't look any farther than that. You've made your image, you know, put the feather in your cap and move <laughs> on to make another great image. Yeah, I mean, you can do very beautiful macro photography and, you know, without that technique and uh, for sure people should not be you know stopped by that but um and uh but yeah if you want to shoot like snowflakes like you do i don't think you really have the choice do you no, no, you can do some really fun stuff without really? focus stacking. Uh, you won't be able to get the entire snowflake in focus if you shoot yeah. it on an angle like I do. And That's I shoot right. it on an angle to get surface reflection. And all the surface details come in and they're pr- uh, quite magical. So I'm going after one very specific thing that needs it. But, I mean, if you want to have just a little slice of it in focus or you want to see right through it, there's tons of really cool stuff. I've done some videography work of snowflakes where, of course, focus stacking isn't possible. It turns That's out right. magical just as well. So okay. um, I'll say, though, that... When you're looking at these kinds of techniques, if I'm combining, say, 50 images together, you can't do this on a budget laptop or a tablet or anything. (laughs) You need to have a lot of RAM in your computer if you're going to attempt something like this. Uh, If you find your computer is just too sluggish and you still want to experiment with it, then export some smaller resolution JPEGs just to see if the result is going to work for you. Because doing that first and then running that through Photoshop would probably save you more time than trying to run a whole swath of high resolution photos through that's a oh, great I can't tip. imagine yeah oh that's a really good tip yeah doing anything that that labor intensive that computationally intensive rendering out small jpegs first to run it as a practice is uh, certainly a great way to handle it nice yeah. i think that was worth the price of admission for the show right there <laughs> <laughs>
This is, by the way, Joseph, this is the kind of stuff I'm going to be talking about on my podcast on the TWIP network whenever I get around to launching that. Super duper. Okay, we're, we're all going to... Who's going to go on our shows if all of us have our own shows? <laughs> <laughs> I've been threatening to start a show for probably a year now. I think Frederick's probably given up on me. But honestly, folks, it's coming. It really is coming. Okay. All right. Anything else we want to throw out there on the focus stacking before we move on to the next section? There's there's automated tools out there to do this, and I think I'd mentioned uh, something like um, that there was some software. CamRanger, I think, is one that will allow you to do some of that. Uh, there's some automated focus rails as well. You'd mentioned a, a micrometer. Focus rail is mm -hmm. another term for that. Um, mm -hmm. I use a Manfrotto uh, a mic a micrometer, and it works really good for the uh, manual process. But if you look around, you'll find some automated ones too. So if this is something that, say, if you've been tasked to photograph the entire uh, collection of a jeweler's inventory and you just want to drop a ring down and press a button and get all the pieces that you need without toiling over it, there's some solutions for you to do that as well. I remember when I was really young, uh, I, I saw an ad on the back of a magazine. This was before I was a photographer. And it was like, it's a computer magazine. I'm, I'm a total computer nerd when it comes right down to it. And there was a stick of RAM on the back and the front of it was in focus and the back of it was out of focus and they tried to cut it out in Photoshop. It looked so terrible. <laughs> it looked so bad. You know, Focus stacking was the key there, and I saw that many years later. Um, I've used focus stacking in landscape photography to some degree as well. There was one image that I had tried to make of, uh, of a beautiful night scene, but I had to shoot it at f1.2 because I wanted the stars to stay solid in the sky, but I was shooting with an 85-millimeter lens, so I had mm -hmm. to have a very fast shutter speed. And my depth of field would not get everything I wanted in focus. So I had to focus stack that landscape. Um, if you're doing landscape photography, this can come up now and again. If you don't know that it's a tool you can use, you'll never use it. So if, you, if you're questioning to yourself how you get everything in focus in a landscape and it's just not coming out in one photograph, think focus stacking. Well, that's a great tip. I'd forgotten about that because I actually have done that myself as well for uh, an interior photo. For an uh, interior designer, I did kind of a hero shot for them. And it was a large room with lots and lots of detail in it. And that's exactly what I do is I, I focused on the individual elements to make sure that those pieces were perfectly crisp and then blend it all together. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. That is still focus stacking. It may not be 70 shots that are an eighth of a millimeter apart from each other, but it's still focus stacking. Very cool. All righty. Excellent. Well, there we go. Learned all kinds of good things in there. See, Valerie, it's, it's, it's awesome. No. Focus yeah, I'll school. be smarter at the end of the show than I was at the beginning. It's all good. That's all any of us can ever ask for. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the listener Q&A. We have one big question here without a whole lot of details, so we could kind of go all over the place with this. But the question comes in from Samuel, and Samuel says, I'm looking for alternatives to Lightroom and Aperture. What do you guys suggest? <laughs> <laughs> why? 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 That's, <laughs> that, that's why? the most important question. Yeah. <laughs> why would you possibly? Yeah. Well, there's well, all kinds of reasons. Aperture, I can see. Well, yeah. It's a, <laughs> you had to rub it in. But, yes. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. But, but Lightroom, is there anything really better than Lightroom? Well, it's I not mean, better. There's I know that it doesn't do everything that Photoshop does, but for most people, that's really all they need. Yes, but there are other features and other workflows. And remember, some people simply don't like the the way Lightroom works, don't like the workflow, don't like the look and feel yeah. of it. Um, some people don't want to use it because it's Adobe. There's well, that's the thing, and I that to me that's silly. But well, it's like whatever works. And I've used Lightroom since it came out, and and 
and yeah, for me, like aperture looked very foreign. So you get used to whatever you start with. And, and I think you need to give it a chance, um, unless you absolutely don't want to use Adobe, but, um, it's pretty awesome. I mean, every time they have a new version, I'm just like, wow. I mean, so much stuff in there that I I'll never need. I'll never use, but it's there if I need it and it's cheap. You don't need to, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to the monthly whatever suite or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I, I bought the, the software and I just upgrade when I need to. And, uh, it's, it's a lot for your money. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, this user didn't unfortunately say kind of what level he's looking for. Um, he asked about alternatives to Lightroom and Aperture, but there are several different levels of use out there. You know, is he, would he better be served with something like iPhoto or now photos, which mm-hmm. obviously replaced iPhoto and Aperture. Uh, photos is, is a great alternative if you don't need a lot. You know, if you're an iOS user, if you're an Apple and iOS user, then photos certainly is super cool because it integrates uh, between the platforms. You have all your photos showing up if you're using the, the cloud. Um, you're all your photos show up on all your devices, your edits sync across all your devices. And that, you know, certainly has benefit if you're not shooting zillions and zillions of photos. Uh, if you're coming from Aperture, I know that Capture One has done a very good job of helping Aperture users migrate over. A lot of people really like the look and feel of it. They say, I haven't personally used it yet, but people say they like the look and feel. Uh, it feels a bit more Aperture-like, and apparently they have a very good migration tool that moves your uh, your aperture images over. And then one of the newest contenders to the scene is Milio, which is frankly getting really, really interesting. Have you guys played with Milio or looked at that at all? I haven't, no. Don? I've watched some videos, but I haven't had any hands-on experience with it. Okay. So I'll just give a, a, a brief little recap, my, my short experience with it. And I actually, um, I started playing with it several months ago. Well, I, after WPPI, that's where I first got really introduced to it. I converted a chunk of a library over to it. I had some issues, and then I never really got back into it. And just this morning, I finished doing a complete wipe of it. I talked to Miley Support, wiped out my entire account so I can start from scratch again because they've done quite a few upgrades over the last several months. But Milio basically is um, it's designed to synchronize between multiple devices and multiple platforms. So you can have Milio installed on your Mac, on your Windows machine, on your iPhone, iPad. Um, I'm actually not sure if they have Android or not. If they don't, then I'm certainly, you know, I'm sure they'll be coming with it. But all of your edits um, synchronize all the way across on all of them. All your organization has some pretty robust editing tools. It has open in editor so you can open off to Photoshop, whatever you like. And uh, the integration or the the synchronization is all, well, of course, it's cloud-based, but it's not storing your pictures in the cloud so much. It's more just using it to synchronize between. And you can choose where you want original stored. Say you've got a big Mac at your studio or at home, you can have all your originals stored there, or you can even mix them up, although I'd imagine that starts to get a little confusing of where your originals are, but you can choose to have higher resolution files of some photos on one location and others in another. It seems really, really interesting. It's going to it's gonna take some time to get into it and really get it, but um, I like what I've seen so far. I, I hope that they improve to the point where they are a direct competitor to Lightroom as well, because uh, with Aperture gone, I... <laughs> 
I don't know. I just feel like the uh, the, the development of the, the the Lightroom feature set has stagnated. It Dude. just it doesn't seem like something that we can all say, okay, well, l let's get ready for the next version because there's going to be these revolutionary new features. I think the last revolutionary new feature came in Lightroom 2 or 3, um, and it's all just been uh, just a, an evolution adding new things. You know, the dehaze filter can work kind of nice, but, you know, you've got functionality with other tools to get very similar results. Um, you know, I've used uh, DxO Optics to because uh, they've got a really nice noise reduction engine, oh, yeah. uh, and I've used other tools that you know for specific uses I would choose them over Lightroom but Lightroom is my de facto standard so I'm very curious why he said that he's looking for an alternative sure. um, I'm thinking, you know, alternative to maybe Photoshop as well. There's really not much to recommend. Corel has a software suite that uh, is is usable but you also have to ask yourself when it comes right down to it, how are you going to learn the software? What are the workflows that you're going to uh, to recognize online from tutorials and adapt to be your own? If you're choosing something that is so off the beaten path that has no support, then uh, you might be kind of finding more frustration than you are good. Now, Mylio, as you suggested, Joseph, they're probably well on the path to, uh, to, to being a, a contender. But I don't know of anybody else that I'd recommend. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah, it's certainly any, worth looking at. Anybody those other new ones. to Lightroom, because it's really all I know, um, <laughs> it, it's just it may it seems overwhelming. And I have students who um, who get really intimidated by it. You know, they and um, and I don't teach Lightroom, but I tell them just do step by step. You know, um, get a whole get some tutorials either on, on at Kelby or Linda, or there are some free ones uh, as well, and then. You know, watch 30 minutes, apply what you just learned, and then otherwise it's so overwhelming when you're new to it, for sure. Yeah. Well, there is a lot of different places to learn things out there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's I certainly don't want people to think that, well, the only way, the only software that I could possibly learn is Adobe software, so I have to go with that. There's... Um, there are a lot of resources out there to learn just about anything. And, and often, you know, even just from the manufacturer, it's certainly a way to get started. Most manufacturers are going to have some pretty good software uh, training to kick things off. But, uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of options out there. It's definitely worth exploring. Very cool. All right, well, uh, let's move on. So after this next break, we are going to share our picks of the week. If you haven't checked out Squarespace lately, you really should pop over to squarespace.com and have a look. The templates they use are stunning and completely remove the need to do any coding or maintenance. And if you want, you can customize these templates to meet your particular aesthetic. The sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't need any coding skill or any magic like that. Their intuitive tools are easy to use. Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering the site to make sure that it's secure and stable. And also, it's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world are using Squarespace. Plans start at $8 a month and you can even get a free domain if you sign up for a year. You can start your free trial today with no credit card required over at squarespace.com. Then when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code TWIP to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right, let's jump into our Picks of the Week segment. Remember, your pick can be anything as long as it is photography related. Don, you're up first. What you got? Something incredibly geeky. Uh, I, I, 
as a lot of people have probably been following, uh, we recently had some images of Pluto uh, sent back to us from the New Horizons space probe. And I just, I get so excited when I see that, you know, a spaceship that we launched almost 10 years ago with camera equipment that was designed clearly before it was launched um, has survived the trip across uh, the solar system, uh, all the radiation and all of the temperature swings that it would have encountered and worked flawlessly. Um, and so there's some interesting reading that uh, if anybody's really curious about this stuff, these cameras operate in a completely foreign way to the cameras that we're familiar with. Um, I think that particular space probe was outfitted with three of them. But if you want to just take photography from a completely different perspective and learn something new, uh, take a look at how these cameras operate. I think I put a, a, a link in the show notes to a white paper that's probably pretty boring. You might be able to find something <laughs> that spells it out in more layman's terms. Um, but you know, even uh, the uh, uh, the cameras that go up onto the International Space Station, uh, they uh, they get hit by gamma rays and cosmic radiation of all kinds, and uh, it causes the sensors to degrade extremely quickly. I think I remember Alex Lindsay even saying that he doesn't like to ship all of his camera gear in airplanes because it's higher up in the atmosphere and the equipment uh, starts to fall apart a little bit quicker there as well. And so to see how a camera can survive for 10 years without being used across the solar system, I think that's really awesome, and I think everybody should read more about that. Fair enough. Sounds cool. I will click that link. I'll be and... right on it after okay. we're done recording. <laughs> Poor Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> Could this show get any more geeky? <laughs> well, actually, I'm, I, I have a, a geeky uh, a pick of the week. It's not a book this time, but it's the Lensmate uh, thumb grip. <laughs> okay. Um, when you shoot with a small camera like the Fuji X100 series, they're not very ergonom ergon I can't say that in English. Ergonomically friendly. Uh, there is no grip on the side for your hand. So, um, and when you're a street photographer, you have that camera in your hand for you know up to ten hours or more. And so the they're not very comfortable to hold. And so the thumb grip. Uh, is is the little thingy that <laughs> I see how geeky I am uh, <laughs> that attaches to the the hot shoe and uh, and it's for your thumb to rest on so you when you hold your camera uh, in your hand it's it makes such a big difference so anyways I had the X100s and I had ordered a cheap version because. I thought, well, it's a little piece of metal, really. Why would I spend more than 20 bucks? Mm -hmm. um, and and it worked fine. I used it for two full years on the X100S. It was, uh, it, it was, it did the trick. You know, it never came off. It, it worked fine. And then I just received the X100T a couple months ago, and it didn't fit right on the new camera. So I just bit the bullet and ordered the lens made, which is it comes in a little jewelry box and it really looks beautiful. <laughs> it's uh, it's chrome to match the black and chrome camera and um, it's 60 bucks, which is ridiculous for such a small piece of metal. But the design is I, now I can see the price difference between the $20 off-brand to the $60 Lensmate, it's mm. it, they're like it's night and day and really? well worth the extra money if you have it. Uh, I didn't have the option. I don't think they made another one for the X100 T yet because they changed the design of the camera slightly, so you can't fit just anything on there. Um, but it's 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 beautiful. 
and it's well well designed and well well made so i highly recommend lensmate um and i think they they make those for different cameras not just the fuji line and and a lot of those ca small cameras um a thumb grip comes very handy very cool awesome thank you Mm -hmm. All right, well, mine is Pure Software, and uh, my pick of the week is going to be DxO Film Pack. Now, in full disclosure, uh, DxO hired me to do some videos for them, but I hadn't really been that familiar with their software before I started doing these videos, and I absolutely fell in love with Film Pack. So the whole idea behind Film Pack is it is designed to recreate the look, an authentic look of lots and lots of historical films. So if you like that native film look, you want it to have some grain, some of the color balance that you're used to finding or used to get out of your Velvia film or your Kodachrome or your T-Max 3200 or whatever it is, this is an awesome tool for uh, for exploring that and for developing those looks. And you have tons of presets. I think there's almost 200 presets built into it, but then you can completely refine those. You could take, let's say you really like the look of, uh, of an Agfa film, but you like the grain pattern in a Kodak film, you can blend the two together and come up with your own look and obviously save those as, uh, as presets and apply them your photos works beautifully as standalone or it integrates with lightroom and you can even do batch processing straight out of lightroom so it's uh it's pretty slick it's a really cool little app i've been never enjoying playing with it cool. do you guys use it i i haven't used that one uh i've used some other similar tools but the way that you're describing it it sounds like it's definitely worth a visit it is. I would definitely, uh, I would recommend checking it out. Yeah, and their other software, you mentioned DxO Optics Pro earlier, and um, uh, their denoising tool that's in there, their prime noise reduction, that's pretty impressive. And DxO is making some cool stuff, for sure. For sure. Alrighty, well, let us, uh, let's let these folks go home. So before we sign off, what do you guys have planned in the coming months? Don, it's to you. All right. I'll be launching my podcast if it's the last thing I do. Uh, I'm sure I'll be the first guest because I'm so techy. Right? <laughs> I, I've actually got some guests already lined up. Uh, just wait, waiting for a few logistical things to uh, to get sorted out. And, uh, you know, it will be uh, the, the name of it is going to be called Inside the Lens. And uh, it's going to be a geeky approach to photography, a scientific and psychological approach to it. Uh, from my own perspective, I'm not a scientist or a psychologist in any way, but uh, I hope everybody will find that interesting and look for it soon. I've been also very busy with workshops. In fact, I just finished a big one yesterday and uh, participated in my most successful art show ever uh, mm -hmm. last weekend. And so it was fantastic, except for the green thunderstorm clouds that rolled in, which made me worried about tornadoes. Uh, thankfully, I survived. But, um, you know, about 60 of the vendors at that particular show had their tents ruined and sometimes even into the nearby lake. So oh I consider oh. myself uh, very successful and uh, very lucky uh, to have survived uh, that particular show. But it's fun, exhausting work to participate in that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's some of the things that have been keeping me busy and fortunately keeping me away from my podcast. But t tell us a little bit. I've never done, I, I, I would not have the patience to just sit for two, three days in a booth. But <laughs> I know a lot of people want to sell their work. And I'm very curious. It seems like photography it, well, it's not the biggest seller at an art fair, uh, although I was just at a big art fair yesterday, and there were a lot of photographers. Booths were not super busy, um, and um, and so I'm wondering what actually sells the the smaller items, the the matted matted pictures ready to frame, or or did you make your money on the big items? 
I made my money on the big items. Did uh, you? you know, okay. I, I sold a number of 30 by 40 canvases and, and some, uh, you know, wow. uh, one was 38 by 20, one was 44 by 20 and some other larger canvases. I, I, I had some small stuff there too. And some of the small stuff sold. I had some small matted prints that were 10 by 10. I had copies of my book there and other things. I had, you know, little packages of snowflake greeting cards. And there's people that walk by. Maybe they just want to support me or they're just looking for something as a gift for somebody. They're not looking to spend hundreds of dollars. But then you have the people that walk by and they're looking for that signature piece in their home and I delivered one of the pieces to uh, one of the customers um, just uh, two days ago and uh, they showed me exactly they were, where they were going to put it in their entranceway. It's a big 30 by 40 piece and uh, made me feel really good that they they wanted my work to uh, to greet people when they walked into their house. So I think though that it really matters the 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 right person has to walk by. And yeah. so if I didn't have the right people walking by, I would have made no money because if I didn't have exactly that person, then I wouldn't have gotten that sale. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really hit or miss. I talked to other photographers at that same show and some of them did pretty good. You know, they made back their booth money. They probably made some profit. Um, uh, although in past years I've talked to people that have said, you know, they're, they're probably going to be losing money on that. And that's the thing. That's what I hear too. And, and when people ask me, should I, do art fairs? I'm like, I don't know. Is it, you know, what if you'd barely break even? I have to ask, uh, you know, I have to ask people when they ask, would ask that question, you know, do you have any experience in sales? Now, I spent uh, about six or seven years and uh, understanding exactly how to approach customers and how to ask for a sale and how to do all of those things while at the same time being passionate about your work and being an artist. And that's a very fine line to walk. Yeah. And in order, I think in order to be successful at these shows, you have to walk that line. If mm -hmm. you just bring it up as a salesman, you get no sales. I had uh, art in a gallery and uh, it was up there for about a year. I sold one piece. And on this, uh, over this uh, three day show, I probably sold about a dozen pieces, wow. uh, a lot that's of them excellent. quite big. Uh, and so, <sighs> It, people are not just buying your art, they're buying you. They're buying yeah. you as the artist and if your personality and your passion comes through uh, and it appears genuine and you can ask for the sale, then you're going to be a success. If you don't have all of those pieces, I, I wish you luck. And <laughs> it's the same for everything. It's the same for workshops. They, it's you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For Absolutely. sure. Well, that's good. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I took some time asking the question, but I think we could actually have a whole show on that because um, a lot of people are very tempted. You know, a lot of people want to sell their work. And uh, well, thank you for asking, Valerie. And so, and, and I again, it's definitely not something. I mean, that's something I would enjoy the the people aspect of it. I would I would love it, and I like to interact with people. Uh, but it's just the the three days and all the setup and everything. It's like, ooh, no. I only do one <laughs> of those shows a year, by the way, for exactly yeah. that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then I can see that. Hmm. Maybe that's something I should consider. There you go. Cool. Although street photography, oh, I don't only shoot street photography, but street photography is not the hottest seller. So it's hard. <laughs> Might as well sell it online, which I do. So fair enough. Cool. Thank fair you for answering. All right. Oh, and thanks for asking. That's great because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are wondering that exact thing themselves. Oh, thank you. All right, so uh, my turn here. I have I've been insanely busy with lots and lots of different stuff lately, but the one thing that I do want to talk about is a my own little workshop coming up. Um, it's a little we're a little late to the game here. We're running a little behind, but we're still going to try this out. It's going to be January of next year, so January nineteenth to the twenty seventh, and this is a photography slash cultural exploration workshop in Oaxaca, Mexico. And the fellow that I'm doing this with, this guy by the name of Eric Meinling, has been doing cultural 
exploration tours in this part of the world, this part of Mexico, for many, many, many years. And he has the type of connections that you can only get if you live there, which he does. He lives there half of the half the year every year. And uh, actually, actually, 24 years he's been living there. And we will be touring through uh, places making food, places making textiles, um, exploring just the in and outs of the culture there and doing photography at the same time. So we'll be doing a lot of exploring in the mornings and evenings and in the afternoons doing some photography education. Of course, always have our cameras in hand and uh, do some pretty cool stuff, I think. We're going to be able to create some great images. And we have quite the itinerary put together already. Uh, information on this whole thing is at my website. If you go to photojoseph.com workshops, you will find this. The full itinerary is there. We have not started selling spots yet. We have a, new, a newsletter sign up on there for more information, and we will hopefully be uh, be actually putting it up for sale within the next couple of weeks. So for anybody who's interested, the way to find out more is to get on that mailing list, absolutely for sure, because I'm sure that once that mailing list blast goes out, we will uh, likely sell out pretty quickly on there. It's going to be very limited space, and we're trying to do this for a very reasonable price. So if you're interested, please do go to photojoseph.com workshops and sign up. Awesome. And uh, I want to hear about Valerie's workshops too, Joseph. I think we skipped her. (laughs) That's all right. I was talking, so Um, thanks. Uh, Well, actually, yeah, I'm uh, in between. Right now, I'm just back from France. That was our family vacation. It seems like I'm always flying somewhere. Uh, But um, ready for the fall workshops back to Paris and New York. And I just, a couple months ago, I just became a Fuji X photographer for Fujifilm USA, which means a little more traveling, uh, but that's more for speaking engagements. So I'll be actually in Dallas next week. Um, I'll be at PhotoPlus Expo in October to do two presentations. So I'm excited about that. I've been really passionate about the brand. Uh, it's not going to change anything that you know. I've been talking. It's always come from the heart, and uh, and I'm going to continue to do so. But uh, more opportunities to to meet more people and uh, and present my my work and do um, some street photography presentations and and lead photo walks uh, uh, during Fuji events so but it's not gonna change anything from my workshops and I'm uh, busy planning 2016 almost done with uh, all opening all the 2016 workshops and they're already filling up so it's uh it's gonna be a busy year very cool that's, that's it for me awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank all that. Any uh, any last bits to add before we close off the show here? I think I've said my piece. Yeah, same here. <laughs> all right, well, that does bring us to the end of another episode of TWIP. So a huge thanks to our sponsors, Panasonic, Squarespace, and FreshBooks for their support. Guys, where can our audience keep up with you and find you? Don? You can find me at doncom.ca. That's D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. Everything is linked there. And find me on your favorite social media platform, including Flickr. Excellent. And for me, it's valeriejardinphotography.com. That's V-A-L-E-R-I-E-J-A-R-D-I-N, photography, all in one word, dot com. And you can link, you can find the links to everything else over there as well. Super. And for me, the easiest place to find everything is to simply go to joseph.info. That is a launching place for everything. You'll find all my photography projects and everything else from there. So joseph.info to get the info. All right, guys, be sure to visit our website at thisweekinphoto.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. 
Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.